You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. How are we doing? For those of you online, thank you for tuning in. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We are officially finished with the first chapter of our new verse-by-verse series that we have titled The Culture War. This morning we begin chapter 2. You know, this past February, some of the world's greatest athletes converged upon Beijing for the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympic Games. It was one of the most honestly underwhelming and underviewed Olympic Games in recent history. It averaged a total of 11.4 million viewers in contrast to the roughly 20 million viewers in 2018 South Korea Olympic Winter Games. If you missed it, there were some spicy storylines, one of which was a women's normal hill ski jump event where a total of five women, different competitors, were disqualified before the final round. According to the International Ski Federation, they were wearing outfits that were too big and offered an aerodynamic advantage. So basically, they were wearing 90s clothes, right? Just very baggy, um, which is coming back into play. Makes my heart sing. Uh, They were disqualified because they didn't follow the the prescribed standards. There were standards that were set forth before them, And they didn't follow the rules. They didn't meet the standards that were put before them. It was even more controversial because they weren't disqualified before the first jump. They were disqualified before the last jump. They had already competed quite a bit and gone through several rounds and uh, didn't have uh, any problems at all. But the rules are the rules, and nevertheless, they violated them. And and so it sets up a principle, and one that is, is applicable to this situation, but certainly one that I think is applicable to all of us, regardless of of what area of life you want to apply it. Certainly, I don't think many of us are uh, Olympic ski jumpers, but certainly other categories where this principle might apply. And it is this, failure to comply with prescribed standards can potentially result in disqualification. I mean, it's not rocket science, it's pretty straightforward. Failure to comply with prescribed standards can potentially result in disqualification. This morning, we're gonna embark on the second chapter of Titus. And what we're going to find out is that there are prescribed standards for us to live by. And when we fail to meet these standards, we run the risk of disqualifying ourselves before the world. Now, if you haven't been around for a while or if you're new with us, a guest with us this morning, let me catch you up to where we are. We're in week four. In week one, we talked about what makes us different as Christians in this culture that we find ourselves in. And in this particular culture war, if you want to call it that, certainly something that's been going on for a very long time, nothing new. But what we defined as a culture war is when two opposing social groups fight over what values, beliefs, and moral practices should become socially normative. One thing that sets us apart as Christians from any other social group in the world is the fact that we derive our personal value from our identity as the church or as the elect of God. That's the words that Paul uses in Titus 1, and that those values form our personal values and not the other way around. So, in other words, how this plays out is you came to faith as a Christian, 
you had specific personal values that were meaningful to you, that you believed should be socially acceptable or socially normative. And rather than imposing those personal values onto the church, we give up our personal values in exchange for biblical values, for what the Bible teaches as valuable. That makes us different. That sets us apart from any other social group in the world. It's usually the opposite in any other social group. In addition to that, we believe in the reality of objective truth. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. That, that, is, a, that is a lie. That, that isn't a real thing. It's a subjective view of morality. It's either wrong or it's not wrong. This is something that is uh, kind of coming to front and center a lot in the topic of uh, abortion lately. You will hear people say, well, I'm personally pro-life, but I just don't think it should be forced on everyone else. That's a subjective view of truth. It's either true or it's not. It's not, there's no, there's no gray in, in between. And so we believe in objective truth. We believe that God has set forth in the economy of creation what is right and what is wrong. And that makes us different. That makes us unique in this, in this existence of the culture war. Week two, we talked about how if we're going to make a difference in the world around us, the starting point is qualified godly leadership in the church that the Bible calls elders. That if we are going to make an impact, we got to have elders, qualified leadership in the church who serve in their function that God has given them. And we looked at the qualifications for elders. They are men. They are to live above reproach in all things. We are as a church to submit to their leadership. But what we found is that not all people in the church are going to submit. And so week three, we talked about what do we do with the divisive person. The, Paul addressed this group as ones who get caught up in myths or conspiracies. They become divisive. They, they become a distraction to the gospel. And Paul says they are insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. And he gave us kind of three things that we're to do, a step-by-step process on how to handle division in the church. We're to silence them to prevent further damage in love. We're to rebuke them strongly, to restore them back to the truth. It should always be uh, for the, the purposes of restoration. But ultimately, if they're unwilling to repent, they are to be removed. So that's chapter one, kind of a, just a very straightforward look at the order of the church. And, and, and you can think of it this way. Chapter one could be summed up this way. In order for the church to make a difference in the world, we have to know our identity as the body of Christ, and we have to have godly leadership who will protect the body of Christ from individuals who seek to divide the body of Christ. This is chapter 1 of Titus. And listen, if we don't have this stuff in place, we will never make a lasting impact on the world around us. We, it will ultimately be undone by the world, the, the, the work that we do. We can fight all of the fights. We can, have, we can win all of the arguments. We can celebrate when, when laws are passed that align with our views. But if the church is not in order, we will fail to make a lasting impact on the world around us. Why? Because listen, this is important. You need to hear this. Because God is interested in transforming the world through no other institution besides the church. That's it. There's no other institution. There's no other human enterprise that God is interested in doing transformative work through than the church. If it doesn't happen here, it doesn't happen at all. There is no plan B. This morning, we're going to move away from the order of the church and into the order of the home. And and Paul is, again, going to lay out several standards, prescribed standards that we are to live by, and these standards vary depending on which category you fall into. He gives a total of four categories 
that every single person in this room, you will fall into at least, well, not at least, to only one of them. You'll only be in one of them. Here they are. They're novel. Are you ready? Older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. Revolutionary, I know. Uh, everyone in here is in one of those groups. Now, I do want to point out that notably missing from this list are middle-aged men and women. Yeah. And that is because the Bible has no such thing as middle-aged. You're either young or you're old. Now, the bright side of this is like no midlife crisis. There are only two age categories. Additionally, I want to point out, this is very important, as much as the world puts a very high premium on younger people, uh, the Bible quite oppositely puts a higher premium on older people. Uh, there is more value and more honor given to older people than younger people. But, caveat, with a higher premium comes more responsibility. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 12, verse 48? To whom much is given, much is required. It seems that the older you are in the kingdom, the higher value you have because of what you bring to the table in terms of experience, maturity, and godliness, but the more responsibility you will carry as a result. Now, before we jump into this, I have to do the fun task of answering the question that I know so many of you are dying to know, which is, how do we define what it means to be older? I need to know what category I fall into, and I need to know if I'm in the older or the younger category. Now, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us an exact age for this. There's no, like, hard and fast number for this. Uh, but there's certainly some details that help us determine, I think, a, a pretty good area that we can consider a breaking point from younger to older. In general, uh, most scholars agree that to be in the older category, here it is, it means that you are old enough to have had a family, raised children, and sent them off into the world as adults with families of their own. So Paul refers to himself as an old man in Philemon 9. Uh, we date Philemon, the letter to Philemon, to around somewhere A.D. 60, which would have made Paul roughly 55 to 60 years old, and he's, he considers himself an old man. Uh, some scholars would say even in the 40s you enter into this older category. The reason for that is the average lifespan of a human being in Rome during this time was 25 to 35 years old. Now, I'm 36. I've beaten the odds already. I'm outliving the average Roman in the early centuries of the church. I like to think, personally, that the 50s is sort of a good middle ground. That's sort of, I'll let you, I'll let you decide. You know, if you want to say, like, if you're like 51 or 52, and maybe 55 is your number, so you can just feel good about that. But, but understand uh, that by the time you are in, the, in your 50s, uh, you've lived a good amount of life, hopefully walked enough with the Lord to really start exhibiting godliness on a more consistent basis. Not perfectly, but a more consistent basis. And so maybe a little before, maybe a little after, but in general, 50s is a good age range for the older category. So in conclusion, if you're 50 and up, you are old. <laughs> I didn't say it. The Bible said it, all right? Don't email me about it. That is a compliment. And you're going to find out that as we walk through this passage. Are we ready for this? I've got something to say to all of you, or at least the Bible does. Let's begin first with the prescribed standards. Paul begins with older men first, so that's where we're going to begin as well, older men. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, 
and in steadfastness or endurance, depending on what translation you're reading. This is what's required of an older Christian man in the church today. There's a, there's a lot here, so let's unpack it phrase by phrase. Let's start with sober-minded. What does that mean? It's a Greek term, nephalios. It's a word that interestingly means abstinent from wine. Uh, it can also mean self-controlled from temptation. The idea here is that older Christian men should be at a point in their lives where they are able and willing to separate themselves from worldly temptation on a consistent basis. The world is full of ideas and practices that are a distraction from kingdom-mindedness and gospel-oriented work. Not even necessarily bad things, but just distractions from the gospel. And while younger men might be more apt to get caught up in those things, older men have come to a point in their lives where they're no longer as tempted and, and able to be caught into this. They're able to leer with, live with a clear mind towards the things of God. They're sober-minded. Number two, it says that they are dignified, or if you're reading the NIV, it translates this worthy of respect. And again, the idea here is living honorably. You're seen by others as you live your life in such a way that you are worthy of applause in your conduct. You're a, a dignified man is someone who people look at and they think to themselves, I want to be more like him. He possesses characteristics that I desire to have. I want to be more like him. I want to learn how to live my life more like that guy. He's respectable in the way that he lives and conducts himself. Number three, he is self-controlled. Similar to sober-mindedness, sober-mindedness has to do with self-control in the face of temptation. This word is just more about generalized self-control, that in general, he has a control over the decisions and choices that he makes. This is interestingly one of the qualifications for elders as well, but also just a general expectation for older men. They should not be impulsive. They should not be known for uh, regularly making rash decisions. They exhibit control and patience in the way that they conduct themselves and make decisions in their lives and in their behavior. Number four, they are sound in faith, love, and endurance. The word sound here, it simply means healthy. And this health works itself out, Paul says, in three different domains. They're healthy in their faith, they're healthy in their love, and they're healthy in their endurance. And these are all important characteristics within the context specifically of the culture war. The last one might be the most important, if we're being honest. There is a high probability that you will be, if you live out your faith publicly, that you will be reviled for it, right? Jesus said this in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, and you will be applauded as my followers. No, he says you will be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures, there's that word, to the end, will be saved. Paul said it as well, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be high-fived. <laughs> no, they'll be persecuted. Listen, you, you've got, we've got to come to terms with this, okay? We, we've got to come to terms with this in this age of social media where we all want to be seen as likable people to everyone around us. You are not going to win a popularity contest for standing up for your faith. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. People are going to hate what you believe. It's just now, it doesn't give you the license to just be a jerk about it. You season your words with salt. You operate with grace. You are loving. You love your neighbor. I mean, all the things that we are commanded by Scripture to do. But 
you can be as nice and kind and grace-giving and generous and all of those wonderful attributes that are sort of endemic of a Christian, people are still going to hate what you believe because it's offensive. It's an offensive thing to the world. They are not going to like it. So it's all the more important then, understand this, that you remain healthy in your faith, that you remain healthy in your love for not only God but for other people, and that you remain healthy in your endurance as a Christian in the face of insult and reviling. In other words, people are going to criticize you and tear you down, and in light of that, continue loving them, continue believing the truth, and do not let your heart become hardened by it. Now, now let me emphasize to you older men, I want you to hear this from me as your pastor. You matter a great deal here at City on a Hill. Truly, you matter. I want you to feel a sense of honor and respect for who you are in this body. You are owed that. We are to grant that to you scripturally. We need older men who embody these characteristics. We need older men who desire to serve the Lord, who desire to impact the lives of other people for the sake of the gospel. It is so vital that you get that, that you understand your worth and your value here in this church. And so if you are an older man who possesses these qualities to some extent, again, not perfectly, but, but if you possess these qualities to some extent, I want to ask you, are you teaching or are you leading anywhere? Are, are you engaged in any form of discipleship? Because if not, why not? What's preventing that? You are needed here. You, you have such a role to play and such an impact to make on the lives of younger people in this church. We need you to do that. Now, if you're a newer Christian and you're an older man, then that's a sufficient answer. But I would ask you, are you in discipleship? Are you yourself growing towards these characteristics? The body of Christ is a better body when older men understand the prescribed standards God has given them and they rise to the occasion. I love that scene in, in The Lord of the Rings where uh, Aragorn has been operating as a ranger. And, and remember, it's, it's in The Return of the King. And and he is confronted by someone, and, and he says, it's time to put down the ranger and take up the king. Because that's his birthright. He's, he's king of Gondor, right? Put down the ranger and, and take up the king. It's a very powerful, if you're a nerd, I guess. I love it. Um, all the women are like, what a dumb illustration. And all the men are like, yes. I want to say to you, older men, it's time to put down the younger man and take up the older man. It's your It's your right. It's your authority. Walk in it. Walk powerfully in it. Walk humbly in it, but walk powerfully in it. And serve in your role, this body of believers. You will make an impact. You are appreciated. Second, let's talk to the, forgive me for saying this, older women. I'm a gentleman. Look at verse 3. It says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. So there are three characteristics here. There's a fourth one that we'll get to in a moment, uh, but we'll unpack the first three first. Number one, reverent in behavior. NIV translates this uh, reverent in the way that they live. Paul's essentially just addressing general behavior here. This is a really rare word in the New Testament. It's not used, but here um, it is found in, in extra-biblical Greek text during this time that shed light on perhaps kind of the force of this word. There is a uh, famous Jewish historian, non-Christian historian that lived during the time of Christ named Josephus. Uh, he wrote in uh, Jewish Antiquities 15, 236 about a woman named Miriam the First. 
She was a uh, princess of a very powerful family dynasty called the Hasmonean dynasty, and she was the second wife of Herod the Great, who you are familiar with because of the Gospels. Uh, Herod marries her in an attempt to join his family with the Hasmonean dynasty and kind of a power move, uh, but later is moved by fear that the Hasmonean dynasty poses a threat to his power, and so he, uh, out of fear, executes all of the high-ranking family members of the Hasmonean dynasty, including his wife, just a real stand-up guy. Josephus describes her uh, as she is on her way publicly to her execution as someone who was reverent in behavior, same exact word, powerfully reserved, not kicking and screaming, but in full control, in full command, honorable in demeanor. There's a kind of meek godliness that she exhibits as she moves um, in the face of fear. She's reverent in behavior. Number two, she's not a slanderer. I mean, again, I think pretty straightforward, interesting word. In essence, uh, older women should not be someone who speak maliciously of others, including gossip and rumor. Uh, they should not talk negatively about others when absent. Paul is saying this is just not how older women in the church should act. What's interesting is the Greek word here for slander, it's the Greek word diabolus, which is literally just the feminine form of diabolos, uh, the word from which we translate Satan, devil. So simply put, uh, things like the slander, uh, you know, hateful or hurtful speech is characteristic of Satan. It never proceeds from the heart of God. It never proceeds from the heart of Father to speak this way, not only for women but for men. It's ultimately a satanic in nature <clears throat> practice. And it should be avoided. Paul uses the same word, diabolus, in 2 Timothy 3.3 for those who hate God. It's described for God-hating individuals. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a word that's used or at least listed in almost every one of Paul's warning lists uh, in the New Testament epistles that have serious consequences with them. It's a kind of behavior that is never of God. So, reverent behavior, not slanderers, um, not slaves to much wine. This is the third one. And again, there's a careful calculation here with regard to alcohol. I really want you to get that. This is not arguing for, ab for total abstinence. He does regularly argue for wisdom. Wine in the ancient world, it was a celebratory element, also used medicinally. Paul tells Timothy not to just drink water, but also wine a little bit for his stomach. It's very different from modern alcohol in, in almost every sense, but still very capable of getting you drunk, which is why the New Testament forbids drunkenness as a sin. So there's a balance here in the New Testament with regard to that. But here's what you start to notice. I want you to pick this up because this is an interesting pattern. The higher emphasis of abstinence comes, or at least extreme wisdom and caution with regard to alcohol comes, the older and godlier you get. So notice the progression here, at least in Titus. The elder, we talked about that three weeks ago, is to be above reproach with regard to alcohol. The older man, we just talked about that, sober-minded. The older woman, not a slave to much wine. It's as if the Bible spells out this expectation that the older and the wiser and the godlier you become, the more caution you use with alcohol and anything that could threaten your well-being and your ability to serve the Lord with your whole mind. The more you see the wisdom in avoiding these things. It's not a rule. Hear me say that. I'm not talking about being legalistic here. It doesn't make you a better Christian if you abstain. Hear that. We have this idea in the South that like, well, I don't drink, so I'm better than all the people who do. Um, that makes you less mature. Let me just say that, that mindset. 
Uh, avoiding alcohol is a characteristic of godliness, not a means to get there. Does that make sense? The godlier you become, the more mature you become, the Bible anticipates the more you will see the need for wisdom regarding it, almost such that it becomes a non-factor in your life. Are we clear about that? So the older woman, she's reverent in behavior. She's not a slanderer or a gossip. She doesn't talk bad about other people. She's not a slave to much wine. She has control when it comes to alcohol. And then look at verses 3 and 4. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. So number four is train younger women. The word train here, it's the Greek term sophronizo. It's a word that means literally to restore to a right mind. In other words, one of the primary roles of older women in the church are to train younger women in the church how to think appropriately. It conveys the idea of training younger women how to think properly about themselves, how to think rightly about God, and how to think responsibly about what God requires of them. This is how younger women in the church become more mature in their faith and in their identity as Christians through the process of mentoring and discipleship. I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. There were uh, two individuals who set forth a couple of years ago to really push this uh, intentionally, one of them on our staff, one of them that was on our staff and moved away. I had no idea she was going to be here today when I uh, wrote this, but uh, we are indebted to the work of Anne Dumond and Vanessa Ellswick. Um, their role in mentoring and discipling, this is a two-year process. I mean, it is, it is a rigorous process that they've taken woman after woman after woman after woman through. And now, this many years later, many of these young women are carrying this out to the younger generations below them. They've been through this intense discipleship process. It's further shaped them into the image of Jesus. They've gone through emotional healing, and, and it's equipped them to then carry this on to the next generation, and it's happening. Many of them are doing this right now, all thanks to uh, this process that began years ago. Paul sees, at least in this passage, one of the primary roles of older women is to teach and train younger women. And speaking of younger women, we move to third category, younger women, the prescribed standards. Keep reading the end of verse 4 and end of verse 5. Younger women are to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. I'm sure you're curious as to what I have to say about some of these. Let's break them down one at a time. Number one, they are to love their husbands and their children. Now, pause there for a minute. This is arguably the most countercultural proposition in the book of Titus that we have come across so far. This, this might be the most countercultural thing that we've talked about. <clears throat> I mean, it's early in chapter two, but if you are a woman in today's world, you are told regularly, not only do you not need to get married and you do not need to have kids, but actually it's a very bad thing for you. It will slow you down. It will get in the way of your goals. This is the current cultural mindset, by the way, that is one of the largest driving thoughts behind the pro-choice movement. A mindset that says getting pregnant and being tied down to a family will kill your dreams and prevent you from achieving anything of value in life. And yet scripture suggests the opposite. Older women are to teach younger women the infinite value and love and fulfillment of marrying a man who loves Jesus and who will love you sacrificially in the way that Christ loves the church, who will demonstrate grace to you on a daily basis. They are to teach you the unexplainable, supernatural joy of having children, the incomparable responsibility of raising a small human being 
into a full-grown adult. This doesn't slow you down. This builds you up. This, is in, this, this, this equips you and, and fulfills you in a way that no hobby or career could ever come close to. Do not believe the bankrupt lie of the world that your greatest fulfillment will be in climbing some corporate ladder of a company that could care less about you. And not that you shouldn't work, and not that you shouldn't have goals. That's not what I'm saying at all. But that, but that, that your career could ever become a, com a competition to family it is an absurd proposition. This is one of the deepest, most fulfilling things that God gives us as both men and women, is family, is marriage, is to be known and to know intimately and to have children to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Number two, younger women are to be self-controlled. Second time we've seen this word, today alone. Younger women are to, are to exemplify self-control. Uh, this word is interestingly, though, coupled with the next word. They're, they're kind of put together in the Greek, uh, which is the word pure. It's a word that, that usually is associated with sexual purity. It often can, conveys the idea of chastity or modesty. It might be that what Paul is conveying here <clears throat> is a kind of self-control with a specifically sexual connotation to it. In other words, younger women are to love their husbands and their children and live in such a way that they avoid infidelity. They're cautious with who they spend time with. Now, let me address the younger women and men, for that matter, for a moment here. Uh, I'm 36 now. I was 21 years old when I got married. Jess and I were very, very, very young we were children. We were not believers. We got married and then like three weeks later became Christians and God was like, here we go. Let's murder them every day. Um, I learned early on in my walk from older, godlier, mature people in my life to never put myself in a situation alone with another woman. That is wisdom. If, if you are a young man or woman and you are married, you need to hear this. You need to hear me for a minute. There is n you have no business going to lunch with or coffee with or shopping with a person of, of similar age and the opposite sex that's not your, your, your spouse. That may sound legalistic. It's not. It's wisdom. You leave no opportunity for infidelity. You just don't do it. You love your spouse. That's great. But what happens when you're in a fight? or you're going through a difficult season in your marriage and you're often at odds with one another and you're kind of always going back and forth and things are not well at home and another person comes along and they understand your feelings. They get what you're going through. It provides an opportunity for a very bad, unhealthy, emotional affair that has a very high probability of destroying your marriage. Well, but what if my husband or wife doesn't care if I go to lunch with the opposite sex? You know, we trust each other. Then you're not taking the potential for sin seriously enough, and the enemy will target you because you're easy prey. you got to hear this. That sounds probably very radical to some of you. But I am telling you, you leave no room for infidelity in your life. Not even room for accusation of it. We follow around here a lot the Billy Graham rule familiar with that? Billy Graham, famous evangelist, wouldn't even get in an elevator with another woman alone without another man in his life. He had a guy that was with him everywhere he went. Was he worried that the moment the elevator would shut, he might have an affair? No. You leave no room for anything. You leave no room for accusation. 
It's about living above reproach. It's about committing yourself to a boundary that protects yourself and protects your marriage. If you will develop the necessary boundaries to protect your heart from even the temptation of temptation, it will serve you well. The next two words are um, separate in English, but again, kind of coupled together in the Greek, working at home and kind. Um, working at home, not a great translation. It's literally just busy at home in the original language. So here's the deal. This doesn't mean that you can't have a job. This doesn't mean that you're like confined to the kitchen or whatever dumb religious things people have imposed upon women over the last hundred years. It means historically, women were seen as managers of the household. Even the Proverbs 31 woman, manager of her household. And by the way, she had Proverbs 31 helpmaids as well. Like you realize that, like if you want to be a Proverbs 31 woman, get yourself a Proverbs 31 maiden. She wasn't doing this all on her own. You know, we give her all the credit. She wasn't doing it all alone. She had people helping her. The New Testament does not paint a picture of a woman who is home all the time and never has a life and has no identity outside of it. It does paint a picture of an empowered woman who manages the day-to-day affairs of the home. She's the helpmate of the husband. That's the terminology used in Genesis chapter 2, a helpmate, an aidzer. That's the the Hebrew term. And it's a word that that means literally one that helps or comes alongside. It is not a term of inferiority. You know who else is described as a helpmate in the Bible? God. God is Israel's aidzer. So Israel has a task. They have a mission. God comes alongside. If God does not come alongside and help them, they are not successful. This is how the Bible envisions the home to be run. The man, the husband is given leadership. He's given the objective to lead, and he is to access his helpmate in order to accomplish his goals for the home. He's not expected to do everything. He has someone who is by his side. Different roles equal in value and essence. And number five, she is submissive to her own husband. Take note in your Bible, circle it maybe, it doesn't say she is submissive to every man. It says her own husband. That is the specific command here. They are to place as a young wife their care and the vitality of their life under the leadership of her husband as he sacrificially leads her and loves her as Christ loved the church and died for her. Now, there is a lot that I want to say here about this topic that I do not have time to say this morning. So I want to make one clear point and then give you a follow-up and then maybe we just make a deal moving forward about this topic that, that I hope we can agree on. Let me, let me just be very clear about one thing first. Submissiveness does not mean allowing or being silent about physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Hearty amen. If that is happening, you get help. You come and talk to one of us here. You talk to a person who is safe. You get help. Understand the context of the marriage in the New Testament is never never to be lived out in secrecy. that's That's not real. It's not in the Bible. You are members of the body of Christ. When something happens to you, it happens to us. When you face abuse, we face abuse. You talk about it immediately. We have to be better about this. We have to agree to this. Now, husbands, we will walk through this together. If you have no interest in changing, we will hold you accountable for it. But we want this to be a place where we take very seriously this stuff and we seek reconciliation 
or ultimately protection for the one being abused. Now, with that being said, there's a lot more to be said about this topic. Here's my appeal to you. We finish this sermon series on August, let's see here, 7th. So the 14th, uh, James, Pastor James will be back in. The 21st, uh, Pastor Taryn Phillips from Refuge Church in Cibolo is going to be here. Uh, And then the 28th, August 28th, here's my appeal to you. I'm going to do a standalone message on Ephesians chapter 5, which is the cornerstone text for husbands and wives and the expectations that God has for each of them. It deals with submission, deals with a whole lot more. Uh, Spoiler, God expects infinitely more from you men than he does women. The burden is on you. The responsibility is on mostly you. We'll talk more about that. But can we agree to just push pause on this topic right now, come back on August 28th and deal with it on a much more deeper level? Is that agreeable? Fantastic. So we've dealt with the standards for older men, for older women, for younger women, and last, the younger men. There's not much here. There's one standard that God gives you. Here it is, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to just for heaven's sake be (laughs) self-controlled. This is the third time we've seen this word today, right? We saw the opposite of it two weeks ago with the insubordinate divisive person. We saw it again the week before that with elders. We get the idea that self-control is an important value in the Bible. It's emphasized a lot, so much so that the Holy Spirit says, you're going to need help with this. And so he's going to come alongside and and bear self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Galatians 5.25, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and young men, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. If you are a young man, hear me say this. You of all the categories need this one. You use self-control. Listen, we aren't asking much of you. We're not asking for a whole heck of a lot of wisdom from you. You know why? Because you don't have it. That's why you need younger or older men in your life. We're not asking for a whole lot of biblical knowledge. You know why? You don't have it. You need older men in your life. All we're asking for is that you use self-control. It's that simple. It's not easy. I get that. It's simple. And praise the Lord on high, you have the aid of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? Can you see how these standards for the home, for older and younger men and women, might play a massive role in impacting the culture around us? This matters. Every single one of these characteristics we've talked about, they are the opposite. They are countercultural. Self-control who, who wants to exercise that in the world? Not slaves to much mi- a wine, sober-mindedness? Why? YOLO. But this is what the Bible, someone just say, please don't. Of course. This is, this is why these things matter, though. This is why God prescribes these things for believers in Christ. We're to live differently than the world. It should be apparent to the world around us that we are different, that we are called out, that we are the elect of God. We talked about that in week one. That's the terminology that, that Paul uses. They're totally countercultural. And, and understand this then. This is how it applies to the culture war. It means that when we fail to meet these standards, we face potential disqualification. That's our second point. We'll end here. Like those 
Olympic ski jumpers that we talked about in the, in the beginning who clearly knew the standards, violated them, and were subsequently disqualified. We as Christians are given clear standards, and when we violate these standards, disqualification occurs. Verse 5, Paul says, you live according to these standards. Why? So that the Word of God may not be reviled. What does that mean? It means that the influence of the Bible in the world is at stake. If we go on and on as Christians about how awesome the Word of God is, and it's our measure of truth, we believe in truth, oh, amen, it's living and active, it's capable of transforming us, it, you know, it's, it's, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, and then we turn around and we ignore the standards of Scripture, it looks like a failure to the world. The world goes, yeah, they talk all day long about how important the Bible is, but then they don't even live by it, they don't even care about it. It sets it up to be reviled. Beyond that, verse 8, look what he says. We're to live according to these standards. Why? So that our opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So obedience to Scripture silences our opponent, but disobedience, it silences us. It disqualifies us from speaking on these things. Think about two of the major modern battlegrounds in the culture war today that we talked about in this passage, or at least that have to do with what we talked about in this passage this morning. The family is the first one, major part of the culture war that we're experiencing. There's a lot of ideas about what the family should be and should not be. There is a major push to redefine what family looks like. Christians argue for a biblical definition of family, but listen, it will not matter at all if we ourselves don't hold to it. If we ignore this, what about marriage? Husbands and wife, marriage, big topic in the world today. Large community wanting to redefine what marriage looks like. But listen to me. We can say that we value heterosexual, monogamous marriage, that marriage matters to the heart of God, that marriage is a covenant between God and man. But when our divorce rate and our infidelity rate is identical to the world, we are disqualified. We have no business speaking about this. We might as well sit down and shut up and disengage from it all because we have no legs to stand on. You lose your voice when we just throw this out. This, is, this matters. If we're going to engage in the world around us, the church has to be in order, and we have to take seriously the God-given prescribed standards for the home. Are you getting this? This is how we fight. This is how we fight. It's not, it's not through any other means it's not through debate. It's not through policy. It's not through politics. It's through living out the standards of God's Word, the standards for older men, the standards for older women, the standards for younger men, or women, and at least a standard for younger men. How seriously will we take it? Because listen to me, we cannot say that we wished the world looked different when we ourselves don't look any different than the world. We are calling ourselves into contempt. Will you exemplify the gospel in your life, or will you be disqualified by the absence of it? The answer to that question greatly determ determines the impact that we have on the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for yet another challenging message from your scripture. I pray, God, that you would develop in us a love and a commitment to, and a serious mindset for what you call us to in the Scripture. Lord, we're not perfect. 
We're going to fail in these standards. We recognize that. We need grace. We need a Savior. But you have given us your indwelling Holy Spirit to live out what you call us to. Paul says we live by the Spirit, not the letter of the law. We have the Holy Spirit that that leads us and guides us as we seek to obey you. Would you help us, strengthen us, empower us to further obediently live this stuff out? God, we know that if we're going to make any kind of impact on the world around us, it begins here. It begins with taking seriously the standards that you have called your church and your people, both in the household of God and in the household of the family, to live out. Thank you for this place. I thank you for the, specifically the older men and the older women who have been of tremendous impact in my life and in the lives of so many countless other people here. We are, as a church, indebted to them. And I believe required responsibly to acknowledge that, to give honor and respect to those who are older and have lived longer and have followed you for a lengthier amount of time. Would you humble our hearts as we walk in these roles? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. Another happy landing. Hey, uh, I do want to say next week that uh, we continue in chapter two. We're going to be spending our time in just two verses. We're going to be talking about social injustice, particularly uh, slavery is the topic of that passage. It's a, it's a, it's a weighty one. Uh, I hope you'll come. We as Christians need to know how we're to face social injustice. There is a way, I believe, that is right, and it is often not exemplified by the body. I hope you'll come uh, ready to be challenged. God bless you. We'll see you next time.